2: Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And to end the show, someone I've been on tour with kind of twice, so kind of a road dog, from the band Rat Pack, from the band No Use For a Name, from the band Le Foo Fighters, also has his own solo career, my buddy, my pal, Chris Shiflet, the guy who gave me a germs burn. More on that in one second, but... First, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at There There is a Facebook page, a TikTok page, a YouTube page, and an Instagram page, all for this podcast. And all those can be found at turnedoutapunkpodcast. On those respective platforms. If you want to support this show, tell all your friends about it. Let them all know that you enjoy this podcast, and uh that that that'll help. You can also support me by checking out the band I plan. We are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information at fucked up.cc. We are going to be going on tour with Super Chunk at the end of January. We got some records and all sorts of crap coming down the pipeline. You can find out more though at fucked up.cc. All right on to today's show and I said off the top my buddy we've been on tour Australia, New Zealand, two shows in Canada with the Foo Fighters. This is the one that uh you know I grew up as a fan of and then got to meet and then they ended up stabbing a cigarette into my wrist to give me the historic germs burn. Chris Shiflet is on the show and Chris is someone who is an incredibly talented guitar player, played in all sorts of different types of bands and had a real interesting journey That has brought him to be in the, the, well, the biggest band in the world at this point, biggest rock band in the world, arguably, in the Foo Fighters. Uh, Being on tour with them was one of the great experiences that I've gotten to have while singing in fucked up. And as I said, one day on tour, I'd been bugging Pat Smear like every day of the tour to give me a germs burn. And Pat said he only gave one out ever, and that was to Darby. And then Chris overheard and said, well, I have a germs burn. And I said, really? And then that's how I got mine. I think we talk about it in the show. If we don't, I'll explain it all. I'll, it'll come up in future episodes, but I'm pretty sure we talk about it in this interview. Uh, Chris has a new solo record which you can find out now everywhere. It's called Lost at Sea on Blue Ian Records. I think I think I'm pronouncing that right. Blue Ian. Chris will also be going on tour with this new record. He'll be playing in January in Auckland, New Zealand at the whammy bar. And then he'll be playing in the UK and Ireland starting on March 20th and going on, oh, all the UK. So he's also going to Scotland. He's going to all sorts of places. You can find out more details about this and the new record at music.com And I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Chris shiftlet my germs burn buddy on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So you've, you've, you've clearly learned the golden rule of podcasting and that is make sure you're recording the small talk leading into it. Cause that's where the best shit happens.
0: Well,
2: I also find that I get so excited about doing these things that I want to bring up all these bands to you off air. And then we roll into the episode and we've already talked about lost exactly. kittens or exactly. something you know? exactly
1: exactly yeah. but
2: uh it is a thrill to have you here my friend because not only are we tour buddies but you are the only person in my life that i've ever let put a cigarette out on me
1: <laughs> wait did i give you a germs burn
2: i got a germs burn from you on that tour it was uh oh boy oh boy i bothered pat for one every day of the tour and then finally you overheard and said i got a germs burn and uh broke down the lineage and it is a real germs burn and i said can i get one and we we filmed it
1: ah yeah it's a funny thing with that whole the rules around that because you know pat doesn't actually have a germs burn but since he gave the first one he is the starting point so he can do as he pleases i believe is how that goes i actually he just had a um uh uh they just had a party over at his house the other night or his wife's birthday and shane west was there um who was the actor that played darby in the movie and 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 uh, i hadn't seen him in a, in a long time but he's actually the guy that gave me my germs burn so we there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, germs burn nostalgia going on this week
2: i think in vampire lore that would make him our like father vampire right because it's exactly. vampire rules right yeah, and he right, got exactly. his He got his from Lorna, rest in peace, who got hers from Darby, who, rest in peace, who got his from Pat. And Pat said he only ever gave out one to Darby, and that was it. Oh,
1: okay. Well, no wonder he is so stingy with the germs burns. (laughs) Exactly. I felt like, you know, and I I
2: think uh, a mutual friend of ours, Fat Mike, insists that he will get one from Pat, um, but I
1: don't think that's ever going to happen. Good luck, man. That's like, you know, two Titans, you know, that's Godzilla versus King Kong. Who's going to win that one?
2: <laughs> I think there's gonna be a war of attrition. They both are partners in that punk museum together.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 I, I you know, I, I haven't been and we were in Las Vegas the other night for um for the iHeart Radio Festival thing. And um and I was hoping to be able to get over there and, and see it, but we were we literally like flew in and flew out. So there was there was no time. But by all accounts it's really pretty great. It is. There's a lot of stuff there
2: that, like you know, punk is like religion, where everyone's got their own definition about what it is. It's so totally,
1: totally, it, it it's going to be it's a thankless often, task. It's that yeah. The term punk rock is a is a funny one because I noticed that a long time ago. Like, um, people just sort of use it to mean whatever they want. And oftentimes, use it like as as an out. Hey man, I'm just being punk, man. It's like <laughs> yeah. the inverse of like you know the way they use the term rock star. Quit acting like a rock star, which you. Means like I didn't do the thing that I was supposed to do, and you're complaining about it, so I'm gonna tell you you're being a rock star, you know? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. exactly. Well, I think, I think, with like even look at your band, every single member is from punk, being the Foo Fighters, your band, obviously, your solo stuff yeah. too, but like I think, uh, every single member of the band is from a different punk scene, which had very different definitions and rules of what this thing was.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it really like if you, I think I've thought about that a lot because that's sort of the, the, the world of punk rock that I got to know as a teenager in the back half of the eighties, you know, was, was, um, you know, at that time there was, there was that thing of like, there was sort of a, a moral superiority attached to indie music, you know, in all its, its many forms, um, which is so different than like, you know if you look at like the you know the British wave of punk rock in the mid to late seventies that were all you know had like major label record deals and and didn't it, it, like that whole thing came later of like you know of not being part of like corporate rock and all that shit that became so kind of fused into into a lot of like what people sort of consider punk rock to be I, I think it's a real like i think i mean you know having put music out on labels of every size uh over the years i can tell you they basically all function the same i th- i would say it's like <laughs> once i once i actually started making records and putting out records and working in in as a musician like you know uh that whole side of it just became clear to me that it just had there was no truth to it whatsoever <laughs> you know what <laughs> <I mean? laughs> Yeah. But I, th- I think
2: it's fascinating because, like, you do talk about fiercely independent people, Fat Mike and, and Fat Records and Ian Mackay and Fugazi and kind of like the world that Dave would have kind of been coming out of early on, Revolution Summer. They're both radically independent versions of punk rock that have nothing in common with each other other than the fact that they're both punk.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, different eras, you know, different, different, just musically different, you know. I mean, I I will say having worked closely with, with Fatty, you know, back in the day, I mean, he really did run his label. Like it. that was maybe the, the out of any situation I've ever been in. Like he really took care of the bands and was, was uh, very honest, never said he was going to do X, Y, and Z and then didn't do it. You know, I mean, he would like, I joined No Use for name I wasn't like, on any of those records for a while you know it took a while before we ever made a record and and he didn't really make that much money on tour so I would come home from tour with a little bit of money in my pocket but that would I'd squander it in a month or two and he would always give me a job that he didn't have to give me you know like mm-hmm. just he would just kind of make work around the office for me just to put a little money in my pocket so I could get to sustain myself to the next tour you know. I think it's also
2: interesting when you look at who he gave jobs to, too. There's like a lot of people, be it like Chris Dodge, you know, yourself. Sure. There's yeah. Various other people that ran labels that also had a day job working at Fat.
1: Yeah. Now, Chris Dodge gave me my nickname, man. I, that's where I got the name Jackson from. No. No, Chris Dodge didn't give me the nickname. Mike did. But it was because of Chris Dodge that I had to get the nickname. Because there were they, they, Mike didn't want to have two people named Chris in the office.
0: yeah so he just came in one
1: day he just came in one day and said you're gonna be jackson from now on i was like what it's like all
2: right yeah he's still got his mic side too yeah (laughs) as great as he is to work with he's sometimes also mike to work with too so um but we're gonna get there but i gotta start this off though with the all start off which is chris how did you get in a punk remember the first time you ever came across it
1: Oh, no, I remember. Yeah, I'm I'm old. I remember the like when the Sex Pistols happened and um, and just not because we were into them or anything, but because it just made a lot of headlines. You just heard of this scary thing called called Punk Rock. And my brother, Mike, um, who's my oldest brother went just kind of out of curiosity because we you know we were listening to black sabbath and Aerosmith and stuff like that kiss and he went and bought the the sex pistols record and the first class record and brought them home and i remember like the consensus in my house was that shit sucks <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I, I think about, i think about that all the time like God, what if we had sort of heard that different like i would have been on a very different musical path early um but that was not what you know we're like little suburban kids in the 70s so that was not what we were into and it wasn't until later like you know probably halfway through junior high really kind of through skateboarding um that i started to hear bands like like social distortion and tsol and jfa i remember my friend luke had a jfa record we'd listen to it and like skate his half pipe you know stuff like that And, and you know in in I've told, I've said this many times, but like where I grew up, the local sort of high school aged bands were all either punk rock or thrash metal. You know, this is like the mid to late eighties. So if you, when you went to a party on the weekend or if you went to see a show or something, that's pretty much what it exclusively would have been like speed metal, thrash metal or punk rock. And punk rock at that point was not that far removed from speed metal thrash metal there's a lot of kind of overlap um in those sounds um, so that that just kind of being around you know gbh um dri stuff like that rkl you know of course yeah my wife's making breakfast right now somebody's at the door honey for the um i think <laughs> the the, the ladies here to to groom our dog who is if you could see very very dirty needs a grooming um be yeah. a long process yeah. Oh no. RKL was it was a big one in in Santa Barbara, and they were like you know the the hometown band, probably one of the most interesting bands in the history of
2: like American underground music. RKL.
1: Yeah. I mean, like you know they're super duper influential on everything, on all the stuff that came after it. You know, I mean, Fat Mike will tell you he basically like the took like no uh, no effects. He took uh, RKL's sort of aggro, high speed crazy shit and fused it with bad religion style melodic songs that's kind of where you get that sound um yeah uh, yeah
2: when he's he's come on the show he's talked about it. it's like the only band in history that he describes having a well he phrases it differently but a a, a sex worker and a a pimp <clears throat> in the band at the same time and <laughs> it also is like Uh, Of of course, of course he phrased it that way. (laughs) Well, he phrased it differently. I'm going to, that was my, my kind of rounding the edges off a little bit, Ah. but uh, there's a, uh, there's like a real, uh, like a a real darkness to that band too. Um, I think John Worcester from super chunk, when he was on the show talked about them being in Europe playing with RKL later on, of course, and them having a roadie at, at the start of tour. And then by the end of tour, the roadie uh, not being on tour because the roadie had passed away and they'd sent his body home.
1: That was Will Moeller. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, if you sort of take a more, a slightly more wide angle view of that, that is, and I think it was true of probably a lot of like, you know, California beach town culture at that time. And I think the same could be probably said to like Santa Cruz or, you know, anywhere, but there was a real heavy drug, um, scene that, Kind of swept through santa barbara in particular and and heroin and cocaine and, and all that stuff and it really took out a lot of people so yeah it, it seems like that's also systemic with punk too
2: like everywhere sure. you go to this day you know like it's yeah. know, i've sadly lost friends recently because of the same sort of thing but it's just it's a scene that draws people that seem to have trauma which of course it welcomes addiction in a lot of cases and
1: sure yeah, you know, it's it's a it's um it's an interesting thing because there were a lot of people that died young from all that shit, and then now we're at the age where there's a lot of people that are just kind of wearing out. You know, I yeah. mean, you know, but Jason Sears and Palmer and just a whole. I mean, there's a never-ending, ongoing. You know, we just lost a couple of friends recently um, to that shit you know some old santa barbara friends that it just uh actually there's there's a song on my new record called dead and gone that i wrote exactly about that you know um that's kind of specifically about a couple of old friends that i grew up with that that died a couple of years ago you know when i was when i was writing the songs that are on my new record but um yeah it's 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 a it's a real tragedy it's kind of like there's kind of a lost generation in a way you know all these cats like matt rat you know from rat pack i know you know who rat pack was i always said like matt you know he had that kind of like he had a charisma to him uh that and like i don't know and and sort of street smarts and a a way of kind of being that if that had been channeled you know maybe in a more positive way like he could have i don't know been a ceo or something you know what i mean but like But yeah, like back to what you said a second ago, it's like this thing draws in people that are kind of fucked up, you know, like I don't think anybody winds up being a musician and that isn't, it's kind of the weird thing of like being a musician because like it's you're kind of fucked up in in some way and that's why you do it and then if you won't manage to have any success, people expect you to be like a, you know, decent member of your community and (laughs) And then that's why that's why musicians are always putting their foot in their mouth and saying dumb shit, getting in trouble. Absolutely,
2: yeah, you absolutely. Know? And you're also because you're also like weirdly profiting off your mental health or your trauma, your lack or, of mental health. Yeah, your lack of mental yeah. health, exactly. And there's sort of this, yeah, they 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 want you till they don't, and until like all of a sudden the mental health stuff becomes too too uh, too heavy, and it's like okay, we gotta yeah. we gotta cut this, and then and then it becomes almost like. If people laugh at it, it becomes a, a, yeah. at a certain point. Totally. Uh, totally. I don't know. Yeah. But to to transition to back to music awkwardly, um, there's with Rat Pack, He brought up, like talk about a, another band that's super fascinating. Dave from No Effects was in that band too. You know, yourself and, you know, like a, another band that's full of cool
1: people. Yeah, no, that's the, that was an interesting time. Like when I remember the first time I saw Rat Pack was actually the first, the first, um, like kind of real show I ever played. I briefly in like 10th grade was in a band called Legion of doom. And we got on a show at the golden Eagle pool hall in Santa Barbara, which was like, like it sounds just a pool hall. That's nowadays, it's an urban outfitters. Um, it's very, <laughs> As they all are. Yeah. You know, very fitting. Um, but, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, at the time it was this, this uh, rundown old pool hall, the, sort of towards the, the lower end of state street. And they started having, punk rock shows there for a minute. And so the show was my band opened and then Rat Pack played and then no effects. And then, um, uh, Excel headlined, but in, what a show in, in, um, in Rat Pack at that time, Vince, who had recently left RKL was playing bass. And, um, and now I think Dave Casillas was in, yeah, no, Dave Casillas was in Rat Pack at that time. Yeah, because I
2: know he plays on one of the Rat Pack records, I think the first 7-inch, right?
1: Yeah, because he – okay, so he was playing – I'm trying to get remember this right, because that was maybe from around that time, maybe right after that, he joined No Effects. Because I think he's on um, some one of those early No Effects records too. But, Liberal animation. Yes, but at the time he was still in Rat Pack. And it's funny because I, I still have this big ding in my guitar because I lent him my guitar at that show. And he smashed it into one of the symbols, and I remember I put a big like you know put a big chop in, in the bottom side of it. And every time I see it, I go Dave Casillas, Golden Eagle Pool Hall. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that was. But then from that show, so Vince was in Rat Pack and Dave, and then yeah, then Dave joined No Effects, and then Vince left, and then I joined Rat Pack on bass, and then Alpo oh, wow. started playing guitar. I guess, around that same time. So yeah, things were just shifting around. Did Legion of Doom ever record? We made a really crappy demo on a four track that I don't know if any of that, I don't know if any of us have any of that recording left at this point. Yeah. Did, but we never made like a record or anything. No.
2: Did you ever get a chance to record with Doug Moody?
1: Not with him directly. No, the the Rat Pack 7-inch that I played on, we recorded at a house in Goleta and, Man, I wish I knew who it was that that engineered it. I don't remember. It was just in some dude's living room, um, kind of slapped together. And uh, man, I wish those tapes still existed. You can find that on on YouTube. I've gone and listened to it. It sounds like it was I'll recorded. Listen. It's very tinny. It's very thin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's that Mystic Records production. That's that Oxnard yeah. sound. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That that is like. Uh... I don't know, like, I love it. Like, I, and I know so many people, especially from that time, that are like, oh, I hate all those records. They all sound like trash. But I'm like, no, there's, that's like, I don't know, there's like a sonic quality to it that, like, ties it to a scene. And that's kind of like, like Motown in Detroit, you know? This right. is like Oxnard Motown.
1: <laughs> that's a funny way of looking at it, but I, but I know what you mean, yeah. It's like Motown, but if you take all the low end and the fuel out of it. <laughs> yes and speed it up add a bunch of cocaine get that what's in trouble yeah
2: yeah uh what about did you ever record with doug moody do you ever that? no have...
1: no. i never even met doug moody like i don't remember i don't remember the details of any of that i just remember like we went and we recorded and it was like in the middle of the week too. it was pretty much being in rat pack was what led to me dropping out of high school um because there were i remember i missed that we, I feel like we did that maybe during the week and I just skipped school, but there was a time that after we did that where we filmed some, and I wish this still existed. We filmed a video at this club downtown that I don't even know, I don't remember ever seeing the video, so I don't think it ever got finished. But that was like also in the middle of the day on like a Wednesday. And the drummer for Rat Pack was this guy, Sean Murphy, and he called the school and um, pretended to be my dad to excuse me. But, you know, he was – 19 or something so they didn't believe it and he was like yeah what's up bro Chris can't come to school today you know he's just like did not sound like anybody's dad and they didn't believe it and they I don't think I got expelled from that one but I got sent to um what do they call it like suspended or whatever like I had I remember I had to go to this other school for a week because of that and it just you know it just kind of like there was no getting back on track at that point and then i just dropped out it's
2: wild how like you mentioned it's such it's almost like the the high school music of southern california like punk took in southern california in a way it didn't take any really anywhere else really in like north america certainly where there's just so many cool interesting people involved in these bands that are playing together it's it's fascinating how many of you guys were kind of like interacting and just at these high schools where you know like uh uh, Jack Black told me about that school that he went to, where Ed Gregor from No Use for a Name, who you replace, uh, went to that high school. And there's that band Mustard from there, and Oh, really? Rudolph went there. Yeah, like it's like Jawbreaker all my, went there too. My
1: kids, my kids go there. I had no idea that Ed went there. I gotta check. I'm gonna check with Ed.
2: Um, I, I think Ed that. went. Th- I don't. I, I know. Really? I don't Maybe he, he was in Hedgehog. And members of Hedgehog were in that band Mustard, and all the guys from Mustard went there
1: because I found a photo
2: online of Mustard playing and Maya Rudolph's in the crowd watching them jam.
1: i got to tell you, just as a little aside, my youngest son, who's now 15, over the last year or so, has gotten totally obsessed with Jawbreaker, which makes me very happy. And, and honestly, I had nothing to do with it. He just found them and just has gone down the, the Jawbreaker rabbit hole. But my kids were pretty stoked when, they, when I, I was like, you know those guys went to your school, right? and i think i think um yeah in, in the um in the like there's like the assembly room at school they have outside of it there's all these pictures of like you know baseball teams of years past and adam's in one of those pictures yeah
2: yeah, yeah. he's he's a great baseball player yeah. he's like an unbelievable player yeah so cool. not quite scott radinsky scared straight level though <laughs> right
1: yeah you know you're, you're talking about like like that 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 uh, late 80s punk rock world. Like, to be perfectly honest, like, I didn't, I, I didn't like, I was around all that stuff and kind of to a certain extent, part of it, you know, with being in, in Rat Pack and everything. But I was like, I, I, I've sort of viewed like punk rock as like a thing of the past at that point, even though there were, there was all that stuff happening. There was like punk rock stuff going on. But to me, like, you know, my slightly older friends that had been around for that earlier 80s wave. Um, had all moved on to other stuff, you know, there were other things that had happened musically that, and, and there was sort of a sense of like, you missed it, you know, this cool thing had happened with shows at the Olympic and all this, that whole world of like, you know, the adolescence and age and aging, all that stuff. And it just seemed like that was something in the rear view mirror that, that I had missed, you know, cause I did, I wasn't a part of that, you know, I was while all that stuff was going on, I was listening to Iron Maiden and stuff, you know, shit like that. Um, And, um, and and it was, you know, that was before the sort of explosion of, of that 90s punk rock stuff. So it was this little in between thing where it just felt like, I don't know, like that was, it was, it was around, but it didn't seem like this like like a scene you know like we're part of this scene or what you know i don't know they never had that feel to me i was i sort of self-identified as a glam rocker through most of those years anyway you know I had like big big bleached hair and wearing makeup and tight <laughs> jeans and you know what i mean so i just i was just like you know there was always the one little heavy metal kid that was played guitar in all those bands you know that was me
2: well that it, and i want to talk to you about that later on but to uh, the guitar player thing but it because it, it, it does die in southern california like you hear about the violence just gets to such a point at these shows. Like a lot of punks like, you know, Mike and, and people leave, uh, a lot of shows just get shut down by cops. And it seems like, you know, bad religion went into, into the unknown for a little bit. And it feels like everyone kind of like left and it just became kind of too heavy crossover happens. It feels like it's another big thing. And it just, yeah, like you're right. Like it does, I really get the sense that there is this sort of desert period for it too, where, you know, you have people like Chris Dodge and and stuff on slap ham records that he's putting out, but it's like, goes super, super underground again.
1: Well, it's interesting. Like in hindsight, you can kind of see like when bad religion put out suffer, that that was like a new beginning starting to happen. And then things, you know, then no effects was evolving. And then a couple of years later, the Pennywise pops up and and there's Lagwagon and good riddance and strong, you know, no use for all these bands are kind of, come out of that but um but i don't remember it feeling like you know it was like stuff that we were into like when supper came out that definitely that was one of those records that was like everybody had it and it was just like on at every party and and then no control and you know and, and on and on yeah. but um yeah but it was a while before it felt like that that was like a a scene developing to me anyway you know what i mean even like i think i was already in la by the time it really began to kind of feel like that you know it does feel like no effects is
2: one of the only bands that kept it going from that sort of wave of stuff but then scared straight put out a record in like what 90 i think they <laughs> put out their final record or maybe at least that's when doug moody put out their tapes as their final record at some point do, <laughs> do
1: you know what whatever happened to doug moody like is he still alive somewhere who can who has all those who has that i believe- catalog?
2: I believe he's still alive one of my most prized records in my collection is a couple well this would have been 10 years ago now uh they did a reissue of rich kids and lsd and you could get copies autographed by doug moody and oh, they had a wow. little like sparkly sticker star sticker on it too and that's one yeah. of my prized records in my collection because uh i believe yeah i believe he still got all that stuff it's amazing yeah. too to think about that board that board is apparently the one they used on like one of the Zeppelin records, according to legend.
1: Oh, really?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Everyone then points how, out that does not sound the same. How did
1: they make all those records sound so tinny? <laughs> exactly.
2: Uh, <laughs> I think it takes it. That's the touch. That's that Midas touch. It's yeah. like that Ryan Green drum sound that just like people <laughs> just want it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, so when you you kind of mentioned getting into the glam sort of sound and stuff is that when you kind of like form
1: um like lost kittens lost kittens in it's in it's like all high school bands went through about like a thousand different lineups you know <laughs> yeah. um but the first lineup started for my ninth grade talent show and it was my buddy grant put it together and that was one version of it and we did a couple of kiss covers and then it kind of went dormant we only we weren't really a band we just did it for the talent show and then in tenth grade, we started Legion of Doom, which was pretty short-lived. That went on for probably just a couple of months, and then we started a new version of Lost Kittens with my friend Luke, and um, and and some of our friends, and then and then that then it just like you know we were just always changing members for a while until we um, eventually a bit later in high school it was me my friend Luke. Um, was the lead singer, other guitar player, Marco, who you might know, ultimately wound up in sugar cult was, uh, was playing bass and, uh, and Steve Sherlock that, uh, plays drums for Nurfurter, um, was our drummer. Yeah.
2: It's, it's interesting too, because, um, and also i think is it marco also in bad astronaut too, yeah. with joey from yeah, yeah. Wagon well, as well?
1: See, okay so we're sort of sidestepping to uh, joey cape here like you gotta understand i met joey cape when i was like 11 or something <laughs> and joey was like an additional big brother to me you know and and he was a couple of years older than me and um you know you have those friends and i had a few of them and the joey was 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 really important to my musical education you know you you have those friends that just seem to like always know what the best records are and the newest bands and just he was i don't know he was on a different frequency than the rest of us and a lot of people in our scene i think were pretty heavily influenced by his you know musical um exploration he was always bringing new music and and like lots of different kinds of you know like whether it be like metal stuff he was the guy that you turned us on to ngbe Malmstein Steeler, you know stuff like that. <laughs> he was the yeah. first guy I ever knew that had a Metallica record. He would have all those like those old compilation records that um, from the early '80s of all that. heavy metal stuff. But also, he was a huge gateway into punk rock. You know, yeah, one of the most like probably musically important things ever that ever happened to I me mean, was really a little bit later in high school. I remember Joey bought every single Ramones record at up to whatever was the current one at that time. And we'd buy them like two or three records at a time. And we would take them and go to his house and record them on a cassette tape. And in doing that, I, you know, of course, I already knew who the Ramones were, but like, that's how I got to know their entire, like every inch of their catalog, you know, from that. Um, Just stuff like that. And they never
2: never get bad, the Ramones. They're like one of those bands that
1: it's just an evolving sound. Like they found this sound and they just kind of like are taking it new places every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been around the time that Animal Boy came out. So they were kind of on a, on an upswing, you know? I like that record a lot. Yeah, it's a great uh, record. Great record. It's, in, it's interesting, like, studying them,
2: too, and the effects that I think it was, like, people have brought it up on this thing, like, New York Hardcore and sort of the arrival of thrash metal had on the band, where Johnny felt he had to compete. And so it became, like, a war of speed. But that really bummed Joey out and mm. that was something that really cj fellow members of me first in the gimme give told me that uh it would make joey like it would bum him out it would be like really it would be a huge aggravation for him that they would always play so fast you couldn't fit the words in and mm. all this kind of stuff but it's yeah it's metal it's it's hardcore that's making johnny do it
1: well you know like at that time like songs like warthog and stuff you know you can hear that influence where it's like clearly they're vibing off of sort of current faster, harder, you know, noisier music. Absolutely. So uh,
2: going back to uh, Sweet Dreams, uh, it it feels like, actually, going back, sorry, to Joey Cape, it feels like that's another person that's kind of like, he talked about getting kidnapped uh, by the members of RKL and kind of brought and made punk, kind of brought into the punk world overnight type thing. Well, he was...
1: He seemed like before I even knew Joey, when he was really young, he played drums. In the pre-RKL thing, right? Yes. And it was pre-RKL, but also um, pre-Rat Pack, because I think Matt Rat was in that band. I remember he had a recording of like one of their rehearsals. It was really funny, uh, where he's like giving Matt Rat shit, and you can hear Matt getting kind of grumpy about it. Uh, So I find it
2: fascinating, because at some point, uh, Josh Brolin becomes like the drummer, right? Or he's like somehow in a pre RKL band too.
1: Yeah, I mean he was a few years older than me, so I never knew him. I never crossed paths with him like in, in those days. And but everybody, every slightly older, like um, Cito Rat guy in that scene would claim him as a as a as one of their own. And I <laughs> and I never believed it until a couple of years ago when I heard him on um I feel like it was the interview he did on the Mark Marin podcast where he talks about that that exactly that. And I was like, Oh my god, that was real. He was really he was friends with all those guys, you know, who knew?
2: Well and then there's also like um I can't believe I'm blanking on his name, but the singer of Doctor No, right, was like another uh child star.
1: Oh yeah, but I mean I didn't know him uh back back in those days. Um from courtship okay. of Eddie's father. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it feels like well it just
2: like i don't know there's a lot of from the hernandez brothers there's a lot of cool history in, in nardcore
1: oh for sure for sure i mean you know like nardcore was a little further to the south from from where we were but you know like like the um the uh, mystic records thing i think ties that t- ties that all together but like you know like like santa barbara was was uh you know especially in those days like when you know i was a kid i didn't have i wasn't like didn't have access to be you know tooling around like that that far out of my you know i just knew my little area
2: did you know brian walsby back in the day who played drums in scared straight um he uh, did a lot of art too for bands did flyers did the nargor comp art i don't think so he was actually asked to be the drummer in nirvana before dave was oh wow no yeah shit. he moved out to he was friends with the melvin's guys and he hit him oh wow first and he wasn't he wasn't a bleach fan and then so i think it would have been a different trajectory though with him playing drums could have been
1: could have been (laughs) (laughs) a very different world (laughs) mike rowe here with a radical idea if you want to see more companies make more things in this country buy more things from more companies who make things in this country i refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts sweatshirts blue jeans and more made by my friends at american giant Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States and right now
0: you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike that's American-Giant.com slash Mike Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day That crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun Yeah, you get it Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any
0: other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: Uh, so you mentioned getting back into it, or like there feels like there's a scene kind of coalescing. Like, how did you kind of begin kind of hanging? Well, I guess you're friends with all these people the whole way through.
1: Yeah, sort of. Like, you know, I moved to L.A. and it was real clear that, there was the whole kind of rock world was 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 not really there just wasn't much to it anymore and just music was changing and all that like alt rock stuff was bubbling up and the punk rock world was 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 getting bigger and bigger and um and i played around in bands in la for a little while and then moved up to san francisco uh, in 1995 and it was uh just real good timing i got a job at, at records um and um and worked there just really for a few weeks and then ed left no use for a name and they needed a guitar player and it was like one of those situations where they they had a tour that they were leaving for you know this was like tuesday and they had to leave on monday or yeah, i forget you know something something like that and they just needed somebody to, to step in there and do it so i i'm pretty sure i'm the only person that auditioned for the gig and Mike basically put, you know, just said, Oh, you guys shouldn't have this guy do it. And, um, <laughs> and, and then they did. And, and yeah, and then, and then it was just off to the races. Like
2: you had also written a song that's on trash, right? The lag wagon record. Like, were you playing with them or is that
1: just, how did that happen? No, I didn't. I just played a guitar solo on, on one of those, on one of those songs. I didn't write anything on that record, but, okay. but I played a guitar solo and then there's that song, um, with me and my friend, uh, there's that song Stoke in the Neighbors that Joey wrote about a wild night with my friend Dave Hannesack. And so we did we do like the the uh, party narration in the middle of it to try to reenact some actual events that took place. <laughs> 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 yeah. But no, Joe, you know, Joey was like he's you know, he was just a, a very good friend. I was friends with all those guys, but um, but uh, but um and I'm actually on that the album cover. I'm supposed to be the goalie. Of, of the oh. lag wagon soccer team
2: yeah oh that's awesome yeah okay, that's awesome. <laughs> there's also a uh because you, you also wrote so sorry too for 22 jacks around then or is that like a couple years that after? was a, that was a little
1: while later yeah that would have been like that was that was already in no use for a name um i don't remember when that record it would have been i i don't know we probably wrote that in like 96 or something i don't remember when that first uh 22 jacks record came out but
2: yeah I think it's 96 maybe maybe a uh, killer song though i love that song that's an oh, awesome right on. one.
1: yeah that, that was a fun one that was that was an interesting thing because i was in no use for a name at that point um joe was was a very close friend and um and we wrote that song together and then he went and made the record so i didn't actually play on that record it's funny how this stuff works out like i didn't play on that record but i'm in the band photo on it uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then did it and toured a bunch for it and then i think play a little bit on um i think he put out a compilation record of like some stuff and i recorded a, a bit with them but then we made making friends and then went on tour again you know with with um with so yeah
2: it, it's uh talk about a cool lineup of that band too 22 jacks so you go through steve soto obviously and, and- yeah like uh, there's like a a
1: real interesting uh lineage
2: through everyone's bands on that thing
1: oh yeah i mean like i i met steve soto through joe like i think the week that i met joe which was years and years before before all that he took took me to go see joyride and um and manic hispanic down in orange county i think that's the first time i ever met soto but yeah soto was such a He's such a legend, just such a sweetheart of a dude, you know? Yeah. Um, he was always so much fun. He was, you know, you, we would just pick his brain about adolescent stuff and Orange County punk rock stuff. and You know, he was, he was just, he was awesome. Loved that guy.
2: Yeah, rest in peace, because he's such a cool dude. and Yeah. Uh, um, how wild was that show, though? Like that Manic Hispanic show in Orange County? I always hear their shows were uh, particularly hairy
1: it was in a park i remember that it was in the daytime and it was in a park yeah um that's awesome
2: yeah i know it was it was good yeah in terms of no use for a name like when you join the band it feels like they were blowing up like there was a well yeah it's, moment. It's,
1: it's it's was an interesting thing because my i got hired at fat records my job at fat records was you know you gotta remember this is like the beginning of 95 that's the punk rock explosion is in full swing the green day offspring you know on the radio, selling gazillions of records, and then everybody was kind of caught up in the in their slipstream a little bit. And so the, um, that song "Soulmate" from Let Con Carney, the No Use For Name record, was getting a little radio airplay. And um, and my job at Fat Records was to call record stores and make sure they had the No Use For Name record in stock. Because it was and, it, and I was calling like mom and pop record stores that had sound scan, I remember because like the sound scan part of that was important because if it sound scanned better then it would get more spins on the radio you know it's all kind of tied into that so the, but really like the the whole reason I had a job at fat records was because of the no use for a name record right um and then and then I wound up getting to join their band and going out and 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 going on tour and the and the first um the very first tour that we did was a really was a really strange one because it was sort of half radio festivals, which is a thing that, as you know, you you go do to try to you know shake some hands and kiss some babies and get some more radio airplay or whatever. And um, and so it was all these radio festivals, and then it was half that, and then half just kind of regular punk rock shows, you know, like at the Elks Lodge or whatever, with a shitty PA and a old piano on stage, you know. It was this weird. It was. It was, and I remember getting the um, the itinerary for it and looking at it and just being like, "Oh my god!" Looking at the venues that we were playing, it would be like, you know, twenty five thousand capacity. Like, what? We're gonna be playing to twenty five thousand <laughs> people, but being but having no idea that for us, we're on at noon. You know, to nobody, to just like yeah. a sea of empty plastic seats. You know? Um yeah. but it was it but so it was, it would I remember there would be like the radio festivals would either be it'd be like the, a lot of them were like that where it was it was um weird and you'd be like, wait, we're playing Duran Duran? Huh? You know? Um but yeah, we'd be on you know in real early in the day. But then sometimes you'd be like on the parking lot stage. And I remember the parking lot stage was always great. Parking lot stage would be packed and it'd be feel like a you know, big crazy show. And sometimes It'd be a club show, but with another band that was out doing the the radio festival, you know, promo hustle. And those shows would be really good too. But it, when you got that like noon, you know, inside the shed with to just a sea of nobody, um, those were would be a little disheartening. Oh, we've definitely we we because of the name of fucked up, we don't get offered a lot
2: of uh, radio uh, shows. But we've definitely played yeah. some festivals in that early morning on a Sunday. Noon slot where everyone's still asleep, and it's yes. like wow, whatever. but like I think that time period, you guys are playing those festivals. There's a lot of people that are doing those interesting, uh, or a lot of interesting bands, I should say, on that radio circuit. Like, or they're trying, right? Like, Foo Fighters would have been playing that. I know the Jawbreaker guys said they were playing with the Foo Fighters around then.
1: It feels yeah, like, yeah, I, well, I saw that tour. I saw two shows on that tour actually. That the one when they toured with with uh, Foos, it was, uh, it was Jawbreaker, Ween, and Foo Fighters. Those are the first two Foo Fighters shows I ever went to. I saw it at the Warfield in San Francisco, and then I saw it at the County Bowl down in Santa Barbara a couple days later. What a weird
2: package. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's great. Those are great shows.
2: Yeah, that is unbelievable. I think that's, that's wicked. We did have uh, punk connections, too. They started as a punk band way back when, too. So I guess it's like all of them once again come out of that punk rock
1: lineage. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually just interviewed Blake for my Shred Rashad podcast. Um, it's not out yet, but it's, it's coming out soon, or it might be out by the time you post this, but, um, but, uh, it was really cool to talk to him and get his perspective on that time period for them. Cause you know, that was such a strange time. There's so much weird baggage in, in alt rock and punk rock, about uh, you know, who could do what and you, you signed to a major label, you're bad guys, you know, all that stuff, you know? And, um, yeah. Just strange times. Well,
2: it's, it's so fascinating to kind of look back on then when there was, you know, like real stakes kind of put on this stuff, like Jell-Biafra famously got his legs broken by someone accusing him of being a sellout, the Gilman, like there's people were fight on site, angry about this stuff. And now here we are and we're all, Part of the matrix now like we're all on spotify we're all on like max talking to each other on telecom <laughs> companies like it's
1: well i mean and even at the time i mean it it was such a funny thing like um you know all the punk rock labels indie labels they all went through distributors like nobody ever thought about that side of it that were like you know yeah there were some indie distributors and stuff but a lot of them were going going through same distributors as major. it's like amounted to the same thing. It's like a, a total nonsense argument that people would like. I remember when I was in no use for a name and like, like I said, but like, but I said this before, but like Mike really did run his label with like, um, he, yeah, I don't want to but like he, he was very good to his bands, mm-hmm. you know, very, very good to his bands in a way that, um, he was very loyal, you know, very, very supportive and very supportive financially, you know. Um, But he but because I think Fat records had blown up, you know, and was big and was sort of viewed by certain parts of the punk rock world as like a sellout label or something. I remember a kid at a no use for name show ringing me up about like, what's it like to be on a sellout label or corporate label? I was like, dude, what are you fucking talking about? Like, okay. I mean, you know, you like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people that were all so wound up about that just didn't just didn't know anything. They weren't in it. They didn't they they didn't know anything about what they were. T- and I said, Dude, look at look at you. Like, who made that watch on your arm? Who made that G Shock? Who made those jeans? Like, what the fuck are you talking? Corporate? What? Like, look at what you support. Like, I mean, wake up, dummy. You're arguing, you're like missing, like put that energy into something that matters, you know, because this doesn't.
2: (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like a religion, right? Like we we are all like worshiping the same four-letter God, but at the same time, it's like such slight different versions of this thing, especially back then. Like
1: now it's slightly different. To me, it always felt like some kind of upper middle class obsession for people to just, you know in the way that a lot of pretend progressive politics are now today in a way to sort of smoke screen to not deal with like real shit. You know, there are real class issues that people, you know, you would, I would want people to have at the forefront of their thinking and they don't because they get obsessed with like completely insignificant little details on things that just don't fucking matter in the long run. When there's much, much, much bigger fish to fry do you think being on fat records at a certain point was almost
2: like a detriment to noise for a name? Like, do you think you guys would have been better served trying to jump to a major label?
1: No. Cause I don't think we were a band that would have succeeded in that realm. Knowing what I know now about how major labels work. I mean, you know, it's like, unless you're going to write big hit, you know, anthems and stuff. And not even just musically. I mean, who knows, you know, any band can sort of evolve musically or whatever, but like, the the work that goes into, you know, get, getting to those higher levels of, of the music industry, it's like, I don't think people, re- like, we couldn't even, we couldn't, you know, I don't want to talk shit about No Use For Name because I love being in No Use For Name, but, like, if you go back and look at, like, our actual sort of work rate, we weren't working that hard, man. <laughs> we would go on tour every six months or something, you know what I mean? It wasn't like... You know, bam, 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 bam. It's just like, and that the like, the reality is, is if you even want to have a shot at like making it, it's your whole fucking life, and it's your whole fucking life till the end of time. You know, the, so like, because it felt like Notice for a Name" was on
2: tour quite a bit, but I guess it's also the type of touring you're doing is like, it's kind of like a
1: grueling type of touring at that point still. Like, I mean, honestly, we would, we just didn't tour that much and, you know, and, 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 um, that, I mean, it's at least in the years that I was in the band, I can't really speak to what happened before or after, but it's, it's just, uh, that is the reality of that. You know, what was that first Warp Tour like? Cause you did the first Warp Tour, right? It was really fun, but it was really fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was a complete mess but i made a lot of really great lifelong friends and there was a um there was a um you know it, we were like a lot of it felt like you were sort of unified in in this wacky adventure that was sort of not quite working you know yeah. <laughs> in in a, in a lot of places
2: well it's interesting i like to look back on that tour and playing huge venues but there's not really like a a headliner in the way
0: that yeah. you'd expect and,
1: and there also wasn't really a crowd in those huge venues <laughs> that, that, was the, that was the we played to a lot of empty parking lots on that run um, I, will, I, I will tell you the next year and we, that we were not on um in 96 like i couldn't believe how much that tour jumped up and just seemed to almost like from 96 on become this much bigger thing and I, you know obviously it became a really important um um, you know like like an important festival tour for a lot of bands you know it was like really broke out of out of out of the warp tour it, it felt like by the next year
2: also 96 pennywise and no effects it kind of leveled up to the point where they could kind of be like a tent pole act on yeah something like that um, yeah deftones oh, yeah, too sure. right i guess started yeah the next year
1: yeah well on, the, on that first one i mean you have a um you know, you have, for some of it, No Doubt was on there sort of before mm-hmm. before they really took off. Deftones were on there a little bit, way before they took off. Um, and then, like, you know, the headliners were like Quicksand and then L7, I guess, and a bunch of other. Sublime, right? Sublime was on there in that sort of period that was between that first radio hit. Uh, uh, it was a, kind of well before that. And then it was yeah. obviously before... Um, before the the really big record, but um, but yeah, I mean, really, really fun. Um, but you were like drinking lukewarm hefeweizen in you know, <laughs> you know, 107 degree heat in Texas in a parking lot. So it was like, you know, it was eating promoter pasta. <laughs> uh, that was I. I quickly learned I would go to catering and I would like get my meal, but then I would also load up a plate for later and go and stick that in, you know in my bunk. And come back late late at night, drunk after, you know, drinking a bunch of warm Pepper Bites and eat hose water promoter pasta before I passed out. That's probably why the Foo Fighters have the best
2: catering. Um, probably I've ever experienced anywhere is because all of you are used to, like, squat pasta and promoter pasta. <laughs> yeah. yeah, never again. Never again. Never again. Yeah. Well, it was, it's great to get a break from it as an opening act, let me tell you. Because uh, uh, huh. it is uh, – but it's it's interesting also, like – like the velvet underground's first record everyone that bought that record went out and started a band but i think everyone that was in those half empty parking lots wound up being sort of the next like that was almost like the the start of whatever the thing that came after grunge was
1: yeah oh it's really interesting like i've i've for many years like i meet people um it's just in places in in the sort of industry and 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 beyond that you just wouldn't expect. I, I just hear it all the time. People come up to me and go, "Like, dude, I saw you in no use for a name in 1996 at a a W all in Cleveland or what? You know, all that kind of stuff." And they'll be like, "You know, some dude that's like a DJ or you know, in just a completely different you know part of the of the music industry." I think that yeah, there's there was um, it's interesting like. Not only that part of it, but just so many people from that first tour, I uh, just continue to run into and be friends with, and you know, just still in it.
2: It's great. Yeah, I saw you in a parking lot in Toronto at the CNE um, with, uh, <laughs> you know, his first name at uh, that first warp tour.
1: Uh, that did was you my really? first show.
2: That was my first show.
1: I remember that show, and was the reason fin- I remember that show is because my strap broke.
2: Yeah, I, I you know what I remember there being something weird. I remember there being a lot of weird things going on at that show. But I do it, the CNE was like my favorite. Like that's like you know where our our state fair type thing is up here, right? So going there, there's a food pavilion that had free samples. So my friend and I just went, not knowing that you had to wear sunscreen, got incredible sunburns in this massive parking lot and ate free food samples all day and basically it was the foundation <laughs> of the rest of my life that's like for nobody, that yeah. moment still to this day right yeah it is yeah. A, a a key a key footstop in uh, but it's so fascinating too because like at this time i guess this is where when you meet the 10-foot pole guys because you wind up doing solos
1: on their next record right unleashed yeah When i i when did i really meet them I, we went on tour with them um
2: oh the no effects It's like they... no effects no use for a name tour Pole tour
1: i don't honestly i don't even remember i remember we we toured with them several times um and we were good friends with them um uh steve carnan uh was a very close friend in, in those he even came on a on a 22 jacks tour one time i remember um we steve carnan from 10 foot pole built the inner loft of the uh 22 jacks uh, van because we had uh because we had built a really shoddy version of that and tried to go out on tour and he was like a, you know he's like a great carpenter or something and he just looked at it and was like that ain't gonna last and so on the first day <laughs> off we, we we went to the hardware store and he tuned that thing right up and did it did it for real oh that's awesome they were good friends man we toured with them a lot yeah
2: Cause And then you wind up doing the solos on Unleashed. They they put you down as, like, hot guitar player or, like, shit hot guitar licks or something, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, um, that was a little bit later. But, yeah, that I've got to go back and find that.
2: It's, I guess, like, an interesting time, too, at that point, because, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, like, is this band going to be the next Green Day, I guess. It's, like, pre-Blink-182, um, post-Nirvana everything, but there's, like, a lot of, like... You know, major label, I guess, attention or at least I don't know. Was there actually major label attention? It seems like from the outside there was a lot of like write ups in magazines and stuff like this around this
1: time. Well, it's it's funny. This goes back to that thing. Like, you know, at the time, I just did not really know anything about how sort of the music industry works. So we we didn't have a manager through most of that time. We, for large periods of time, there early on, we didn't have a booking agent. So when that was all kind of going on, I mean we didn't I remember one major label approaching us a bit, um and just kind of feeling feeling it out. Um, uh, but I don't think we ever even really seriously entertained signing to a, a different label if mean, that was so good to no use for a name. I mean, they were like really good to us, like you know mm-hmm. it't it wouldn't, it wouldn't have made sense to to try to. To try to do the major label thing, and I just don't think—I don't think most of the bands, as evidenced by the fact that most of the bands that did sign a major label, it like it just kind of didn't work, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, like a lot did though, would, right? Like Bracket, well,
2: like uh, Hagfish
1: oh, yeah, and yeah, I mean, lots, lots of bands did sign a major label. Is nothing against it. I just, you know, that's that's you're really rolling the dice. You know, there's only you know, out of that whole scene, I mean, who had really massive success that really drove that it's like green day and the offspring. And that's pretty much it, you know, and then Mm -hmm. a little bit later Blink. you know, Mm -hmm.
2: and, and offspring had it on the indie. you know, it's like, that's one of those weird moments where it feels like, like obviously there were a lot of people working that record and not to undercut their work, but at the same time, it feels like that's like a real lottery kind of moment.
1: Sure. Sure. And I remember even back then, like Fat Mike talking about like, like, it, like, not like, like, what's the right way to put this? Like, it wasn't like, um, I just think he, he knew that like with his own band, it just wasn't like major label music. It's not mainstream music. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. you could maybe get a big advance or whatever, but like for the long term, it's going to make more sense to, if you really want to do this for a long time, to, to not go that route because that's that's just you know the the mainstream music industry only cares about one thing it's hits if you're not writing hits it, it ain't gonna work you know but i think with
2: the offspring it's almost like those like there's just so many things about that that's like that's not a hit on paper you know to like pitch that and be like yeah this band is going to be the band that's going to sell 10 million records off this
1: well yeah i mean and with any sort of new thing there's no there's no track record of anybody having success with it and then somebody comes along and and blows up and then a bunch of people you know come in and copy that sound so um yeah it's like you know in the same way that you would have never thought when I'm sure nirvana never thought when they were recording nevermind that but where that was going to go and i'm sure guns and roses didn't think when they were recording appetite where that was going to go and so forth and so on but like somebody's got to kick these scenes off you know what i mean
2: i think i think with like there's intangibles with Nirvana and Green Day that I don't see aesthetically in the offspring in the same way, right? Like the blue eyes or Billy Joe's puppy dog looks like, I just don't think the offspring have, you know, I don't mean to run them down. They're perfectly handsome people, but like it just on paper, it just feels like to me, that's maybe that's my personal obsession, but it just feels like a real outside chance that that would be the one that would do it.
1: Well, especially also doing it on an indie, like you said, like, that's the super, I mean, that's, there's, you know, every now and again in in the music industry, there's these anomalies that occur, but you can't really bank on it.
2: <laughs> well, and like you said, also, it's like, there's the other side of it is like, there's the hard work, right? Like the offspring were what, three records deep by that point. Like they had toured, they had done the squat. They had eaten that promote, like probably worse than promoter pasta, squat pasta type thing too. Right. So. Oh
1: yeah. And then, I mean, and that's just the beginning. I mean, then once you, I mean, i can only imagine what that would have been like like the what, when those records took off i mean those bands the workload would have gone up 10 million percent you know if it, it feels like
2: that also breaks up a lot of bands or like crushes a lot of bands too and it's not even you know not making it it's even like the success of trying to and trying
1: to survive and weather that sure yeah because go 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 you know yeah it's a lot of you have of to have a uh 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 a certain constitution, you know, I think to, to, to want to live that life. Yeah. I feel like there was a moment where, uh, you know,
2: I, I feel like I, I tasted it and what that would be like. And I just don't think I had the constitution for it. Like not that we had the songs <laughs> for it either, but I just don't think I had the, you know, for what it
1: takes to kind of the warp tour style touring. Oh yeah. World Warp Tour in particular, where you're never in a hotel and all that sort of stuff. It's, is that's that's a particularly grueling type of touring, you know, but just all of it, you know, like, I mean, being away from your family, being away from your friends, it's, I'm not going to complain about it. It's the life I love and the life I always wanted to have, but, um, but it is, it does come with its own, you know, whatever, hardships and challenges or what, you know, but um, yeah. Well, it's fascinating when you talk to
2: like comedians or pro wrestlers, like, uh a lot of these sort of like similar sort of like vagabond kind of like existences where it is this thing that's amazing but it's also sort of this like gilded cage cursed blessing at the same time like you're saying you're away all the time and you're living life between your jobs
1: yeah yeah it's i mean i think like we've been particularly lucky like you know um with like being able to bring our kids out and um really like you know i for 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 me a big part of why I ever wanted to be a musician in the first place cuz I never went anywhere I think you know looking back cuz we never traveled the whole world was a mystery you know and um and I love that that my wife and I have been able to bring our kids kind of all over the place and and they've gotten to grow up being far more worldly than than I ever was as a kid you know it's great that's the, that's certainly it's stuff like that that's that's the, the those are like the upsides to it you know
2: yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm not bringing my kids on the Damned tour. I'm leaving for in two hours. I tell you that much. So unfortunately, they're not going to be around to see the Damned on this thing. But
1: wait are you are you guys going out with the Damned?
2: Yeah, we're doing uh, a week with the Damned right now. Yeah, like in two Who's... hours.
1: Are they still doing the um, the original uh, lineup version? Uh,
2: I heard Rat Scabies is out, and I heard Brian James. It might be not playing with him these days. It's, it's uh... Captain Sensible and Daveanion oh right on um, we've also just been told protocols is we're not allowed guests backstage because they're very worried about getting
1: ill COVID is like totally rearing its its head in in the touring world we've had a lot of a lot of folks on our crew go down recently again i was like oh fuck, here we go again it's
2: it's the reality of of being in a band is that we're constantly exposed to it right like Every day is a new airport or a new truck stop or a new backstage, right? Where, yeah.
1: And, and I mean, just it did, did you trip out like on when when touring started to come back? On like, I, I was super freaked out about selfies, you know, like, oh, ah, oh getting, my gosh, getting hot pitted by strangers. I was like, oh no, I'm gonna get sick every day, you know.
2: First night of tour, we walk out on stage and I had all these plans because I had seen, um, tony adolescent play with two masks on right like he he does three masks when tony adolescent Hell sings right. now he's got like a three mask thing that he does it with and i'm like okay i'm gonna do it with a mask so first song in the mask goes into my mouth i take the mask off and this guy jumps on stage to sing along with me and i'm like well it's over
1: <laughs> this is
2: it <laughs> yeah. And i just kind of yeah. surrendered myself to the process at that point and of course we ended up getting COVID by the end of that tour but it was yeah. uh yeah
1: it's, it's the new reality it's tough. When a big part of your job is interacting with lots and lots of people, it's hard to, uh, it, to, to keep that shit out.
2: It's weird. Cause there's like a lot of things that, uh, it's just like hard to try and like keep out when you're in a band, you know, like the, 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 uh, you know, the, the mental language, the physical language. like it feels like a lot of it is like fortifying yourself, uh, against the world a little bit and against your own band at times too with my my <laughs> I'm
1: still with the same group of people so <laughs> uh, fortifying yourself against your own band <laughs> you got to you got to uh, walls. That's, that's <laughs> been there bro i know what you are. mean yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> when w-
2: when you join uh, the foo fighters did it feel like Being in the, because Robert Trujillo was on the podcast and and we talked about how when he joined Metallica, I kind of was like, you know, you've been in this band with Mike Mir, you had been in this band with Ozzy Osbourne, like you were prepared for all these different types of personality types. So when you can go into the situation and adapt to it, like, do you think like these situations had prepared you to be in this band where you can kind of go into this band and and adapt to all these different people and kind of feel it out? right away
1: oh for sure i mean uh, you know i think being in in no use in particular prepared me for it because like it was a very similar situation where i joined a band quickly and didn't know anybody else in the band or on the crew or anything and just had to jump into it and a big part of being in a band is is being able to get along in in tight spaces um, (laughs) in the van itself or backstage or hotel rooms or whatever um and and uh, and so yeah, you know, it's all those years leading up to like if I had never done that and just jumped into being in the Foo Fighters, like I don't, you know, I mean, I would have been so stoked anyway that I probably would have just been like, yippee, you know, whatever. <laughs> but um, but like, yeah, I don't know if if um, if my van skills would have been as tuned up as they were, you know yeah i find like that's
2: a lot of band and ultimately that's what keeps bands together over the long term is ego management it doesn't matter how good your band is if you can't figure a way to to handle each other it's it's, it's going to fall apart
1: yeah yeah oh for sure yeah. and i've been in those situations you know when i first joined no use friend am you know for the first year or so there was a lot of tension between our singer and our bass player Um, And that just kind of bled over into a lot of stuff, and made for some very kind of uncomfortable long drives and whatnot, and um, and ultimately led to the bass player leaving. You know, Um, and that can that can that's hard to be in that in that room when that's going on. You know,
2: I love I love thinking about the Foo Fighters and trying to figure out what shows you would have all been in the room for. Uh, at different times in your previous bands and like being like, Oh yeah, they might've been together. They might've played at this show together or they might've ran into each other.
1: Well, I mean, I definitely know that, you know, I mean, I remember it very clearly when Rat Pack opened up for scream at this Chinese restaurant down on state street, um, in Santa Barbara. And when Dave was playing drums and that was a very memorable gig, you know,
2: Wow, that's a new one for me. I was going to try and connect you through Pat Smear being at some sort of Twisted Root show or Tater Tot show at some point, but man, I had no idea about the Rat Pack uh, Scream Connection.
1: Yeah, and the funny thing, and we were just talking about this the other night because we played up in Santa Barbara and Dave was talking about this on stage, but um, they actually went and stayed at our drummer's house, which I didn't even know at the time had happened. And I'd like kicked myself like, wait, why didn't I go back to the to sean's house and party with scream man that would have been a (laughs) way cooler end of that story you know what i mean yeah even then and that would have been in whenever that was 88 87 somewhere around there um like i remember dave playing drums at that show and i remember in particular because our drummer took some ecstasy it was basically like almost like on top of Dave during their set, like he was high out of his mind and just like so excited, you know? Um, Yeah. Oddly enough, that's the one show from back then that no photographs seem to exist from like, there's no, I have never seen a photo of that show. Is, Is there a flyer because there's a, you know, there's that scream website that has like
2: almost every flyer for every scream show that ever happened.
1: You would think that there I mean there most certainly would have been, although I don't yeah. recall ever seeing one. And uh, um and it was this it was a Chinese restaurant down on State Street that only to my memory ever had a couple of shows and it was just kind of for a, a brief moment there. And I remember the other show that they had well, uh was RKL, of course. Um but yeah, that was yeah, I, I, there's no, no evidence that it ever happened, but it did, I swear. I shouldn't have been a responsible young man that night. I should have not worried about getting up for school the next morning, and I should have gone to Sean Murphy's house. It's, it's So this is pre-you dropping out of school for Rat Pack. Yeah, yeah, but it was most certainly one of the nights that led to it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. uh, Chris, this has been awesome. And anytime you want to come back on this podcast and talk about punk or or hardcore or – glam Absolutely. or
1: whatever yeah man i thank you for having me Man, it's funny that it took this long for us to pull this off but i really appreciate it, it was great talking to you i miss you thank you chris for coming on the show And you heard right there chris
2: will be back for part two at some point in the future in the meantime check out lost at sea see chris on tour this new year in in auckland or in, in europe somewhere and And check out the Foo Fighters. They're a good band. They're, 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 They're going to go places, I think. And that's it for this episode. Coming up on the next episode of Turned Out a Punk, we got a real wild, interesting one for you. Not only is this person a former member of the FUs, the Straw Dogs, Agnostic Front, and others, but they also played on the first vinyl appearance of Slick Rick The Ruler, and started Nasty Little Man PR, which you may know from the Beastie Boys record, Hello Nasty. I guess it's immortalized by the Beastie Boys record, Hello Nasty. Steve Martin is on the show this week. Not to be confused with the comedian, Steve Martin, but Steve Martin, the music industry legend, the hardcore legend, and and we got a lot to talk about. This is a fun one, and that is on the next one. And that's it for this week. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. Stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths, different races, different nationalities, because we're not talking about politics. This is just basic human rights shit. People deserve to be able to live free from hatred, from violence, from discrimination. And if there's... Groups in your community that are affecting positive change, and you want to get involved, get involved. Volunteer your time, volunteer money. If you can spare it, I'm sure they could use it. You can also try meditating. I didn't believe in it myself, and now I find it very beneficial. A lot of people have been saying this for centuries. Maybe try it. And if it doesn't work at first, try it a couple times. Go there. And make your own culture, because anyone can do this shit. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a record label, put on shows. Because punk gets better when you contribute to it. Definitely. And last but not least, sign your organ donor cards. Because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. You're actually making less work for the person that has to deal with your body. Oh, that's morbid. But just sign your organ donor cards, because I've seen it perform miracles. And uh, maybe it will perform a miracle... When you do it. Oh my gosh, this is getting so heavy. Uh, uh, thank you for listening. This is the first episode of the New Year, so... Uh, or, or I guess, <laughs> this celebration of the New Year. So if you celebrate this version of the New Year, Happy New Year. And if you don't, I wish you Happy New Year on your New Year's too. But thank you everyone for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.